So this morning, we are getting back to our series in the book of Genesis called In the Beginning, which is covering the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we are seeing how God created the world and why it is the way that it is now. And this morning, we're going to enter a kind of a three-week segment where we're going to be focusing on the great flood in Genesis, where all the animals came two by two on the ark. You guys remember all of these songs and stories when you watched as a kid? We're going to be, co- we're going to be covering that. And so this morning, we're going to start by looking at what caused God's decision for the flood. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to have the slides up here, but I always encourage you to open up your Bible to follow along. Don't have a Bible, grab one from under the seat in front of you. You just go all the way to the left, and you're going to find it. All the way. If you were watching the news this week, uh, I'm going to see most of you probably saw uh, about the the shooting in Buffalo, where a guy walked into a grocery store, and he he just, he started just shooting up the place. Uh, Killed 10 people, I don't quite remember. Most of you see that on the news this week? Some people look at events like this that have happened, and they ask the question, rightfully so, where is God? They look at Ukraine right now with Russia invading and the atrocities that are taking place, and they say, where is God? Where is God? For some people, this, and it's considered the greatest objection to the evidence for God, they struggle with this, how could there be a God that's all good and all powerful and he allow evil? Let me think to yourself, how would you answer that if someone were to ask you? Because evil is everywhere. There's no end to it. So is he not good? Is he, is he not powerful? Is he just not paying attention? Does He even care. You might be someone this morning who has asked this question yourself and you're like, I can't believe in a God who allows all this evil. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this. We're going to look in Genesis 6 primarily and we're going to see what it reveals about how God views evil. What his nature, what we see in his response to evil reveals to us about his nature. And I pray that it'll give us a greater understanding of God and the understanding of how he interacts with evil in this world. So what we're doing as we enter into chapter six is we're seeing you know, the mankind kind of obeying God's command to go forth and multiply. Man spreading out across the world. And in doing so, the effects of the fall Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, which we talked about in Genesis 3, are being coming magnified. So here we go, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And then the Lord said that my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, which means it grieved him deeply. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is the word of the Lord. So today in examining the nature of God and how it responds to evil, the first question that we want to ask of our text is what did God see? And it says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great. Every intention of his heart was only for evil. And then the narrator, he gives an example of this in verse 4. And this is one of the, the tougher passages in the Bible to understand. And then there's a few different views on what the writer of Genesis could be referring to in this situation. The first one, if you've never heard it before, it's going to sound a little crazy. Sound a little weird. Just prepping yourself right now, prepping you for a little weirdness. Now, one of the theories is that the sons of God refers to fallen angels or to demons. You remember we read in scripture that, there, uh, that Satan and other angels chose to raise up against God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. God, in judgment, punished them and they fell from their positions. God, Satan was kicked out of heaven like a lightning bolt, as Jesus would say. Now, in, in ancient Hebrew sources, extra biblical, the common Jewish view is that the sons of God here did refer to angels. The idea that the fallen angels, demons, possessed men, which you read about in other places in Scripture, in the New Testament, and impregnated women. Now, I don't know why, because you don't ever see angels given in marriage in heaven. That's not a thing they do. Maybe it was an attempt to cut off the family line that Jesus Christ was going to be born through. We see many attempts by Satan to do that. And this would explain the existence of the Nephilim, who in the Hebrew word for that is giants. Now, there's some debate whether that means giants physically or if it means like giants in stature in their time, like, you know, Michael Jordan was, you know, he was a giant in the area of basketball. And I don't have time to go into all of this today, but this view has some other challenges and difficulties as well. Now, another proper view, uh, another popular view is that the sons of God were descendants of godly Seth. And that the daughters of mankind were descendants of ungodly Cain. And then assuming that the descendants of both these men kept true to the moral examples set by their ancestors, the union of these two families would have been contradictory to God's will. We see this, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, that people who follow God, and in the New Testament, people who are Christians, should not marry people who don't follow God or who are not Christians. Because it will only take you away from your faith, cause you to lose some devotion to the Lord. And you see the Israelites fall into this trap time and time again. You know, they would, they would go out and they would start marrying people from other cultures who did not follow the Lord and they would walk away from God. 
Now there's a couple other theories as well, and like one that this refers to people, kings and leaders who took advantage of people of poorer classes. We won't go into all of those. In reality, the ability for us to fill in the details is limited. Because as is the case normally in the Old Testament, the narrator only gives us as much detail to see the point that he's trying to establish. And that point that is God is not blind to the evil in the world. God sees the evil in this world. He sees it. He knows it's here. He's not oblivious to it. He's not oblivious to what he sees in Ukraine. He's not oblivious to the guy who walked into the store in Buffalo. Now, not only does he see it, he reacts to it. Look at verse six. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him deeply, grieved him deeply. And the Hebrew word here, it's a very intense word for grief. For example, this word is used when a group of brothers discover that their sister had just been sexually assaulted later in Genesis. Or this word is used when King David was told that his oldest son, Absalom, had been murdered. The same word was used to describe God's grief in Genesis 6. God is grieved by evil. He is grieved by evil. We see it right here. He's not some disconnected God. He sees it. He's grieved by it. To the point that he regretted that he had made man. And not in terms of regret like he made a mistake. Said I should have just stuck with dogs and cats or something like that but a regret of how humanity had responded to his creation. For as we'll see next week with Noah, not all men had fallen away from him. He was grieved by evil. Just like we are. I mean, where do you think we get it from? Where did did we get it from? A sense of morality, of right and wrong. Do we think that it just came out of ooze somewhere? There is a universal right and wrong in this world. Where does it come from? It comes from God. But this does beg a question. If he is grieved by evil, then why does he allow it? Why does he allow it if he is grieved by it? Well, here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I have, we have theories. We have theories that God created us for a relationship. We're not meant to be robots. I mean, think of it this way. You could stop your sin, your kids from sinning and beating and punching each other by locking them in a closet. Couldn't you? Some of you are like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. But what kind of relationship would you have? Would they ever know you as a father and as a creator? No. We have other theories where when God gives an assignment in the Bible, he don't take it away. He said, you have dominion over the earth. And if you want to take good care of your earth, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we talked about in Genesis 3, but we did anyway. He said, well, now you're going to see what, what it's like to have dominion over the earth after you've done this. Someone asked, said, why doesn't God stop 
stop all the wars. And somebody else replied, because he wasn't the one who started them. But in the end, there's no Bible verse that says, God allows this much evil for this reason, this reason, and this reason. At least that I haven't found. If you found one, come show me afterwards. But I'm going to tell you what I do know. And this isn't something that hit me until recently. And I'm going to bet you it hasn't hit a majority of you. That whatever reason he allows evil for, it must be a really good reason. Why? Because he allows it to go on even though it grieves him. I mean, think about it. We will do anything and everything to eliminate our suffering. Forget suffering. We'll do anything and everything to eliminate our discomfort. But God doesn't do that. Even though it grieves him, he allows it to continue. Christ, when he was on earth, even though he was grieved, he allowed evil to continue. So there has to be a good reason for it. I mean, think about it. Because he's getting ready to, and it's not that he doesn't have the power, because he's getting ready to send the flood. But even when he sends the flood, he doesn't eliminate all evil. Because what, what happens like a chapter after the flood ends, we'll see this, Noah goes out and he gets drunk. Goes down the bar, has way too many jello shots, and he's, he's drunk. And then we see his son completely dishonor and shame him over it. So it's not like God gets rid of all of it. So it's not a power issue. There's a reason for it. Now, some people, they will say, well, because we can't think of a good reason for God to allow evil. He can't be all-powerful. He can't be good. Oh, he doesn't even exist at all. So there. The problem with that line of thought is it's a logical fallacy. It's not a logical line of thinking. It's emotional. There are a whole lot of times in your life and in my life where we've not been able to think of something that was really there. Or every one of us have been wrong in our lives before. Some of us more times than others, but we've all been wrong. So if we're really humble, we're really objective about this, we can't say, that I'm right about this, that God can't exist or God wouldn't allow a certain course of evil. We can't say that. If we're really being objective, if we really want to seek truth, we can't say it. But it's a true fact. I can't think of a reason. What good reason God allows the evil when he does? I can't answer that. But it must be worth it. Because God could have stopped it, and he did it, even though it grieves him. So we've talked about what God saw. We, we, we've talked about how God felt. And now we, we, we look at what God chose to do. He says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. Another verse where we're not 100% sure what it means. One view is this means lifespan. 
that God says, look, I'm tired of man. I can only put up with him so long. You get 120 years and then you're going to kick the bucket max. That's it. That's all you get. And in Genesis 11, you see lifespans get shorter and shorter and shorter until the time of Jacob. I think uh, Joseph, I think he only lived to 110. Moses was 120. Joshua was 110. I think Aaron's the only one that got above 120. Well, in present time, there's only one verified person, a French lady who made it to 120. Though there's some debate whether she really was that old or not, we don't really know. Now, the other view is that when he says his days shall be 120 years, it was really a way of saying, look, I'm tired of this. Y'all got 120 years before the flood comes and then you're done. And this makes sense because he was prepping to judge the world with sin. Once again, we only know as much as the narrator shares to prove his point. And this is how God responds to all evil with judgment. Sooner or later, he judges all evil. He judges all sin without exception. And do you know why? Not to punish. Though punishment is a part of it, there's a different goal. And that goal is salvation. You see, salvation comes through judgment. I'm going to say it again because that sounds a little bit weird. Salvation comes through judgment. I mean, what is God doing here? He's saying, I'm going to get rid of the people who are destroying the world. I'm going to save the world by getting rid of those who are ruining it. His judgment is giving the world a second chance, so to speak. Back to parenting. We've all had children. If you've had multiple children, if you've had that blessing, you know that they can hurt each other and they can kick and they can hit. And when they do, what happens if you don't bring judgment? It continues, right? And we've all experienced those, excuse me, those snot-nosed little parents, brats whose parents don't punish them. They are terrors, little hellions. Sorry, this is years of children's ministry talking, <laughs> right? They are a nightmare. When you put down judgment on your children, you're putting a stop to the evil, to the sin, Go to our nation in our warm and cozy political environment over the last few years, the hot mess that it is. We have seen what happens when authorities refuse to bring judgment on those who would break the law. They only become more brazen. It is only judgment that keeps evil in its place, thus saving other people. And those who struggle with the idea of eternal punishment, this, this applies. I mean, just like God would not allow the faithless on the boat, the ark, he's not going to allow the faithless in heaven. None, and, 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 and we complain about this who don't like this judgment, but none of us would say, if we were to invite people into our home, nobody's going to bring someone into their home who doesn't respect your authority, respect your rules, or is going to honor you. Nobody would do that because you know that it's a threat to everybody else. 
And so God's judgment in keeping people out of heaven provides salvation for those who are there. Salvation comes through judgment. Now, why this matters to you and me this morning is that if Jesus is who he says he is, Genesis 6 was not going to be the last judgment. In Luke, when talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus said this. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Goes on to say, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man when he returns. God will come again one day and he will bring a final judgment to this world. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be 10 years, could be in 100,000, I don't know, but the day is coming. And for some of us, it doesn't matter because we're gonna kick the bucket before that day comes and that will be our day of judgment. That's why this matters. And this should have a couple different impacts on you. Well, many, but I wanna focus on two. And one is that if you sit here today and your faith is in Jesus Christ, not just as your savior, he saved me, but also as your Lord, that you have submitted and surrendered your life to following him and his word, that this truth should bring you peace. His judgment brings us peace if we are truly our followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, the judgment of God is literally the only way that you can find peace in this world. Some of you that don't have peace in your world, this your world, I want you to think, is it possible that I lack peace because I don't see God as judge? It's the belief in a God who is loving and tender and just loves us and just swoons over us and would never judge us. That is what robs our peace. And we have a lot of this going right now. We have a lot of preachers out there who's like, God is all about you. You are just the star in his skies. He has posters of you above his bed at night. You are just awesome and he loves you. He loves you just as you are. The Bible says completely opposite. But we'll get to that in a minute. Believing in God as judge is the only way that you can have peace in this world. There's... This Croatian philosopher, he's a, he's a teacher at Yale. I can't remember his name. It slips my mind. But he experienced the tragedy of war in Europe. And, and he said this. He said, a belief in God, a belief in a God, rather, who refuses to yield a sword, who refuses to judge, is what allows violence to thrive. The belief in a God who does judge is what brings peace. And let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying that if you think believing in a God of vengeance is what leads to war and strife, you're living a far too comfortable life. And this is so true. Man, we in America, we don't know suffering like other parts of the world. We are so comfortable in our lives, we have no idea. We're ignorant to most of the suffering that's gone in this world. And so we're like, oh, God can't judge. 
He can't. He's, God, he's a God of love. He accepts everybody. But as a man who has lived in poverty, who has lived in suffering and through war, he says, if you've really experienced real violence, if you've had your house burned down, if you've watched your family members be assaulted and murdered like he has, he says, what will happen is if you don't believe in a judge of all the earth, you're gonna pick up the sword yourself and you will be sucked into an endless cycle of violence. And he says, you see this, you see this in Africa and other parts of the world where there's these endless cycles of violence that have gone on for centuries because there's no other God to bring justice. So you're gonna be the one to bring justice. And then when you wrong them, they'll be the ones to bring justice. And some of us, we do this in our lives. We're not in huge violent turmoils and wars, but when someone hurts us, we're gonna hurt them back. Could be our spouses, could be people in our jobs. When someone wrongs us and hurts us, we will find a way to punish them back. It's where bitterness and anger lie. He says, you will pick up the sword unless you believe deep, deep inside that God is going to do it. Unless you believe vengeance is mine, saith anybody? The Lord. And this need for vengeance will consume you. It will plant that seed of bitterness in you. If you look in our world right now, the strife that's going on in our politics, How would this look different if they all believed in a God who was judge and that would bring judgment one day? Now on the flip side, if you're someone who's been wronged, deeply hurt and violated in your life and things have taken from you, if you don't believe in a God that is judge that will bring judgment and you don't have the power to get vengeance, then will eat up inside of you. You will feel a sense of loss and emptiness and sadness because the scales of justice can never be weighed. And we have inside of us, placed by God, a desire for justice in this world. Once again, it didn't come out of the mucus that we evolved out of from. God had placed it as we were made in the image of God. And it will eat at you. And it will rob you of joy and happiness in your life. It's only when you know that there is a God in heaven who will bring judgment that you can have peace. Yeah, they wronged me. They hurt me deeply. It cut me. But God will judge them. God will take care of it. And when you can say that and place your confidence in God, then you're freed from anger. You're freed from bitterness. You're freed from vengeance. And you can focus on serving the Lord, the things that bring life. And then what's beautiful about this is even if you don't see justice brought on this side of heaven, God, because you have that peace that God will bring it eventually, God will use your pain and your hurt and he will use you to pour your life into other people. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And you take that pain and your hurt and you'll be a hope for someone else. Some of you here are struggling with anger 
You struggle with bitterness. You struggle with unforgiveness. You hold grudges. You think of ways to punish people. You remove your, you remove your love and your attention from people with a wrong way because ultimately at the end of the day, you, do not, you are not living as if there is a God who is judge. But God says in Micah 4.1, for behold, a day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Not only this, but this understanding that God is judged brings humility because you realize that when you read the Bible, you are no different than the people in Genesis. We say, oh, we're not evil. But evil at its core is disobeying God and his word, ignoring him in our lives. And for those who are not following the Lord, it's not peace that should be brought to you by all of this, it should be repentance. Because the Bible is very clear that if Jesus is who he says he is, for those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, judgment is coming for you. It's coming for me. Romans 3, it says, no one is righteous. No one, not one. No one understands. Nobody seeks God without God's prompting. In Ephesians 2, when Paul is writing to Christians, he said, listen, before you had faith, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins. Following the ways of the world, following Satan, who is at work in the sons of disobedience. See, we, we get this idea that God just loves you how you are. The Bible doesn't say that. If you do not have your faith in Christ, you are an enemy of God. Period. It does not tell you put your faith in him as Savior and as Lord that you become a child of God. Which is an amazing truth on its own because how many of us that would adopt our enemies into our families? I wouldn't. Maybe you're better than me. My prayer is today one, that if your faith is in Christ, you will start living and responding to this world and its evil as if there is a judge in heaven. If your faith is not in Christ, my prayer is that you will understand that we are in a time of grace. Just like those 120 years or however many years it was before the ark, there's an opportunity to repent before God's judgment. And ultimately, that's what he wants for everybody. First Peter, 2 Peter 3, it says, With the Lord a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
but I would encourage you. Do not mistake his grace and his mercy for passiveness. For the very next, set, in every next verse says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, either at the end of time or on the day that you take your last breath. And so I implore you this morning, don't wait for a more convenient season of life or till things are going a little bit better, until you settle down in life, until you retire from business. For whatever other thing you're using to put off submitting your life to God, repent and look upon the Lord. For salvation comes through judgment. The judgment that was placed on Jesus Christ for the sins of this world that were put on the cross to bring glory to God and to bring salvation to you. Repent and look upon the Lord that you may be saved. The righteous judge of the world. Holy, full of grace and truth and justice. By his spirit and his word he calls to you this morning.